0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew twenty-three, thirty-seven through twenty-four, verse two. This is the word of God. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is, the na- blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown
1: down. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this morning we have that we can gather together. We thank you for the blessedness of this snow which invigorates the earth and even us as we step into the cold, but where you know we're warmed by your love. May we this morning in Matthew 24 learn more about your plans in our lives and for the future. For it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you for coming this morning. Last night I was actually wondering how many would show up when I saw the forecast but I'm glad that you're here. <clears throat> Some years ago, 40 years ago probably, I was uh, given an invitation to meet a guy on a business proposition. He was from Dallas, and I'm from Denver. And the idea was we would meet halfway in between. So he said, well, let's meet in Amarillo, Texas. And my first thought was, that didn't seem fair. It's got to be much closer to De- But it's not. Amarillo really is halfway between Dallas and Denver. And we went to Amarillo. And you know where We ate. The Big Texan. Has anybody ever been to the Big Texan, Amarillo? It's a famous restaurant, if you've not been there, but it's famous because you can buy a 72-ounce steak, and if you eat the whole thing, you get it for free. And as I look this morning at Matthew 24, I feel like this morning we've ordered the 72-ounce steak. <laughs> but today we're going to eat only about 16 ounces of it, and I think it'll be full, unless we stayed all afternoon, but I don't think anybody wants to do that. Do you? No. All right. So we come to this passage in Matthew 24, and you've seen through the the recent chapters, Jesus now moving towards Jerusalem. He's now being engaged not only with his disciples who are close to him, but also with the Pharisees and others, challenging them and who they are and what they believe. And as we move forward into this text, we see Jesus now beginning to talk to his disciples in, in great intimate detail about what's coming in the future. In Matthew 23 at the end, as we just heard read, Jesus now looks over Jerusalem and laments that its destruction is near and the end is near. Now, we live in an era where a lot of people like to look forward to end times events. They see things like this. The uh, German theologian Karl Barth was the first to say that you can, he was World War II era kind of guy, you can hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and see these things happening. But a lot of times we get focused on these sort of end time events, all this prophecy. Here is where it comes from. Much of it is Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's this discussion, the longest extended discussion that Jesus has in Matthew. He talks about these sorts of events. Now, not many years ago, it was 1988, there was a a booklet published, actually probably some years before that, But it was called, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Come Back Before 1988. And it kind of went around, the idea, because Israel was established as a state in 1948. And a generation is 40 years. So he must return within this generation, which would be 1988. And time came and Jesus didn't return. The guy that wrote the book revised it and said he made some miscalculations. It would actually be 1989, so he's able to sell another batch of books, and it didn't come to pass either. So a lot of times when we're trying to figure these things out in great detail, we can make mistakes, the very mistakes that Jesus warns us against making in Matthew 24. And so he condemns the temple, as we see at the end of chapter 23, In chapter 24, he begins to discuss these things with his disciples, as we will see. Now, before we pick this up, I just want to take a moment to kind of lay some background so we understand how we got to this point in Jewish history. And what is the Jewish world in which Jesus lives? What's going on in the world of politics, in the world of religion, in the social world that he's engaged with? Remember, this is all actually uh, a, a very integrated history And it's actually very well documented for us, not only in the scriptures, but in many, many writings have been found throughout recent decades uh, that explain these events. So real briefly, we know when Jesus is here that the Romans are in control. Now, the Romans gained control of the area of Judea, which to them was the far part of the Eastern Empire in the year 63 B.C. So by now we're in the year 30 A.D., let's say. Uh, 30 or 33, but we're now 93 years the Romans have been there. Let's just round it to 100 years a century. The Romans have been in control of Judea. And the reason the Romans came in 63 BC is the Jews invited them. The Jews had themselves been in control of their own land under the Hasmonean kings, having pushed out the Greeks, for about 100 years, from the year 164 to 63. But the Hasmonean Jewish rulers were more oppressive to the Jews than even the Greeks were. So the Jewish people invited the Romans to come in and take control. So the Romans now take control under Pompey the Great. Pompey the Great comes into the temple and desecrates it. But now the Romans are in control. And for a 100 years we see this. And their control was to say, we're going to maintain the land, but let you Jewish people run it. And so at a time in the 20 B.C., a young man raises himself up as a great leader. His name is Herod. We know Herod. Herod the Great. He's not great because he's a good man. He's great because he's a great builder. And Herod the Great, in the year 20 B.C., proposes that the second temple, the temple that was first built by the Jews 500 years earlier, be now rebuilt, be revised, And Herod is going to make for the Jewish people a magnificent temple. And that construction begins, and it goes on, clear up until nearly the time in 70 AD when it would be destroyed. So the temple's now being built. And in 30 AD, when Jesus and the disciples are engaged with the temple and looking at the temple, they see this absolutely magnificent structure. Now, Jerusalem became then, because of that, the center of the Jewish religious world. But the Romans were still in control. So the Romans basically said to the Sadducees, who were in control of the temple, we will let you run the temple as long as you do it within our sort of agreement. And we will appoint the high priest. And so the Romans had great control over the Jewish religion. The Sadducees weren't themselves great Jewish religious leaders. They were, in fact, in cahoots with the Romans. And the Jewish people at large throughout Galilee in the north and the separate lands, they all looked to the Sadducees as really being, in some sense, anti Jewish. They were working with the Romans. Now, the Sadducees had control of the temple. That means they had control, essentially, of the Jewish banking system. All the money ran through the temple, and they were able to make advantage, take advantage of that fact. So the Sadducees now have the temple. They're in control of it. The Jewish people resented that. And so in the distant lands further away from Jerusalem, you saw the Jewish people resenting that and many times revolting. Now, we know Jesus came from Galilee up north. The Galilean region was a hotbed of those who are opposed to the Romans and opposed to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. That's where we find the Pharisees. The Pharisees were no friends of the Sadducees either. They had a lot of angst against them as well. They were a different type of Jew, very uh, strict and religious, trying to maintain the law. And that's why, early in his ministry, we see Jesus engage with the Pharisees. But when we come towards Jerusalem, we see now the Sadducees become center stage. And the chief priests, those who were in charge. And so Jesus now comes to Jerusalem. The Pharisees don't have much say there, but the Sadducees do. And this is where Jesus looks at what is happening in the Jewish temple and says, this now will come to an end. Now imagine yourself being there at this time. It's hard to do, but if you could picture this magnificent Jewish temple. By now it had been worked on for nearly 50 years, 46 years It was a huge temple with beautiful polished white limestone with gold inlaid throughout it. Jesus says this thing is going to be torn down. If you've been to Washington, D.C. and you've seen the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the White House, the Capitol building, these huge structures. It's hard to imagine a band of anybody coming in and destroying it. This thing was like the Titanic, you might say. It was indestructible. But Jesus said, it's going to fall. Now, this sets a stage. Throughout these years, there had been rebels against the Romans. There had always been those false messiahs who came and said, we will now lead the Jews against the Romans and defeat them. Jesus himself was accused of that. When he talked about tearing down this temple and raising three days later, he was talking about himself, we know. But those who are hearing him are hearing him in the context of a world in which the Jews and the Romans are at odds with one another. The Jewish people were in essence in exile in their own land, being controlled by the Romans. The Romans have control. They want them out. And so in those years, when Jesus was uh, about 19, 20 years old, there was a a rebellion, insurrection in Galilee in the year 14 AD, in which... Dozens and dozens of leaders of that rebellion were themselves crucified in and around Galilee. So Jesus' first experience with crucifixion would not be his own. It would be seeing other insurrectionists themselves crucified, sending a message, the Romans are, to the Jewish people, you better mind your place. This had been going on. And now Jesus says, in Matthew 24, this will continue to go on after I depart and in the intervening coming years. Now, when we come to this passage in Matthew 24, we see this being laid out. And as we do, we see a number of things. So let's talk, first of all, about his, the destruction of the temple. In chapter 24, verses 1 to 3, And Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus said that the temple is going to be destroyed. Now the disciples, they hear this. They've got to be wondering in what way is this going to happen? That's a stunning event. So the disciples look at this and they comment to Jesus about this. Uh, And this comment the disciples make about the temple is not like they're tourists. They've been there many, many times. But it's really asking Jesus, how is it that that magnificent temple, the center of the Jewish world, will itself be destroyed? And so Jesus is faced with a question. Now, he walks from the temple across the valley to the east to the uh, Mount of Olives. And that's why this is called the Olivet Discourse. And so we look at verse 3, and he sat on the Mount of Olives. And whenever you see a teacher sitting, that's a significant event. All teachers sat when they taught. And I don't know how we lost that. <laughs> but now teachers have to stand. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In English, when we read that text, it sounds like there's three questions being asked. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? When Jesus answers, as we see, he will answer as though there are two questions. When the disciples asked the question, they thought they were asking one question. And that's going to help us understand what's going on as we work through this passage. They thought they were asking one question. When will this happen? When will the ends come? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They saw all of it being tied up in one event. But Jesus will explain it's actually two separate events. Now, he's not going to answer the when question. But he is going to start laying out the signs. But it's tricky here. Now... This passage has been interpreted in many different ways. uh, And it's very complicated. And if we had uh, hours and hours to work through this, we could work through all the debated material, the nuances of the passage, uh, how the interpreters kind of work through it. Let me just give you the three broad outlines of how it's interpreted. There's first those who look at all of Matthew 24 and say that every part of it is future, that none of it came to pass In ancient history that all of it is future sometime in the distant future in our present era when Christ returns the Great Tribulation the second coming all of that the entire future there are those who say it's all past the second view is that it all happened in ancient history and in fact they might even say that not only did it happen in the past It was actually a record of history. It was written after the facts. The facts being the temple itself being destroyed in AD 70. I think what I want to do this morning is read this as though we're the disciples of Jesus on the mountain that day. As though we're living in that very same era he is living through the lives that they led. And I think we will see that it actually has application both then and now and through all of the age in between. What Jesus is talking about here had application to the disciples themselves, and it has application to us today. So let's work through this passage, and we're going to work expeditiously as we go through it and see these things. And so we see first this prediction. When will this happen? Jerusalem falls in A.D. 70, just to make sure we got this history right. Jesus predicts it here in A.D. 30. And within a generation, in AD 70, about 40 years later, Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. It was destroyed, again, because of the rebellion. The Jewish people couldn't stand living under Roman control any longer. So in the year 66 AD, now 36 years after Jesus' resurrection, uh, there's 36 intervening years. The disciples are building the church. You know the book of Acts. All these stories are happening with this as the background. In AD 66, up in Galilee again, there was finally an insurrection that actually had some early victories against the Romans. The Romans sent their general, Vespasian, to go quell the rebellion. Vespasian, the general, brings his son Titus, and they go to Israel, first in the north, and they methodically work their way south. While Vespasian is doing this, Nero is the emperor, and Nero commits suicide. Uh, in the year 68. And as he does, uh, when he dies, it kind of suspends the orders that the generals have. And so Vespasian kind of holds temporarily until a new emperor takes a place. Well, there would be a number of emperors. It's called the uh, the year of four emperors. Uh, Gabo, uh, Galbo, Otho, and Vitellius are three successive emperors, generals. They're all generals now that take control. They come, the last one, Vitellius, he was this big ginormous fat guy who just gouged himself, and he died an ugly death when those who rebelled against him. So after these three Roman emperors die, Vespasian, who's still managing what's going on in Judea, he himself decides it's now his turn to be emperor. So he goes back to Rome, he's recalled, he becomes the emperor, and he leaves his son Titus in control. So Titus is the, now the general that's going to Bring down Jerusalem. And in AD 70, he does. In those two years before then, 68, 69, 70, Jerusalem is besieged by the Romans. They encircle it. People inside begin to starve to death. There is within Jerusalem a million people because they do what you might expect. When there's a Roman army coming, you flee to the walled city for protection. But now they're trapped in Jerusalem. And for these several years, within the city of Jerusalem itself, a million people are living, surviving on whatever rations could be stored. And then they begin rebelling against one another. They begin having internal wars within the walls. But it took a few months in AD 70 when the Romans finally encircled it and begin to bring it down. And the the description of the war is well told by Josephus, a Jewish historian who tells us all about what happened. So in A.D. 70, the uh, walls of Jerusalem fall, the temple is destroyed, it's burned to the ground, and desecrated completely. So this eventually comes to pass within that generation. Now as we continue reading in verse uh, 4, we will see uh, the deception of counterfeit Christ what happens here is Jesus warns his disciples that when you start seeing these things happen, beware of these counterfeit Christs that are going to come up. So verses 4 and 5, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. In these verses, Jesus is warning his disciples that when you see the Roman armies encircle Jerusalem and destroy it, you're going to hear rumors that there's others out there that claim to be the Messiah. There was one named Simon Magnus. We read about him in the book of Acts. Another named Theudas. Another called the Egyptian. Josephus tells the story about the Egyptian, how he gathered an army of 30,000. Maybe that's exaggerated, but a, a large army that the Romans had to quell. And he himself was destroyed. He gathered an army that large, ...because they're all looking for a Messiah. They're all looking for someone to come and deliver them from the Romans. But Jesus says, don't be misled by these false messiahs when they come. In the same way for us today, a lot of people are looking for answers... ...somewhere to the world in which we live. Whatever it may be, we as believers have to keep our eye, our focus... ...and our mind on Christ himself and what he's promised for us in our future. The answers to the world we have today are not going to be found in all the the common things we see around us, but instead found in Christ himself. So we see all these uh, uh, false promises over in uh, 1 John chapter 3, or chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, John writes now, to people then and to us, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John warned us then, he warned them then, warns us now, beware of false prophets. They're those who bring a false message of hope, those who bring a perverted doctrine, don't follow them. And so we see now the deception of counterfeit Christ. Then we see in verse 6 the devastation of continuing wars. Uh, Rome was always at war. In verse 6 we see, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. On October 7th, Hamas from Palestine, a great incursion of terrorism into Israel, which continues to raise in our mind, are these wars signifying something significant about the end times? You can go back the day that Israel became a country, back in May of 1948. The next day, the Arabs invaded Israel. So they've been at war with their surrounding Arab neighbors since the first day, 75 years ago. Wars have always been common in the world. And, and though every generation looks at the war that they experienced as something unique, something special, something significant, in fact, as we look through history, we see that war is a commonplace evil in the lives of nearly every generation on every continent throughout history. It's always there. Think about yourself, the effect of World War I, World War II. If you're old enough to know people that lived through those wars, that era, you hear their stories, you, you think there's nothing ever been that terrifying and evil. But all through history we see that. So Jesus is saying, when you see these wars... These things are going to happen, but don't think the end is yet. These things will happen. The Romans were always at war. Uh, the, the final great war that will end it is spoken of in, in Revelation 16. Armageddon comes. That's still future to us, but that's the great war that brings an end to all of it. Verses 7 and 8, we see these uh, many different disasters and cataclysmic events Verses 7 and 8, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. If, when I read beginning of birth pains, I think about, I think they call it Braxton Hicks contractions. That I, you know, many, half of you know about this. <laughs> the other half know what it's like to have the flu, but... But but if you go to the doctor with these Braxton Hicks, the doctor is going to say, no, that's nothing. I mean, you'd think it is, but it's not. These beginning of the birth pains is what Jesus describes. And he speaks about famines uh, and earthquakes. And history's recorded many of these uh, in ancient history. The book of Acts even speaks of Agabus uh, in in chapter 8, I think, where he talks about a coming famine. There's always been famines. Even today when we have the ability to to feed the world several times over, there's still famine in the land. Sometimes it's caused by natural events. Sometimes, more often today, it's caused by political events. Much of the famine in Africa that was so commonly heard of uh, through the 80s and 90s was not because of a lack of food, but a lack of the ability to get food to the people that needed it because of government control. So this has always been the case. But earthquakes... Uh, I was in the Northridge earthquake back in uh, 19-something, 91, I think. Uh, I remember that well, although I don't remember the date. I remember the earthquake uh, that that shook Los Angeles, knocked out all the power for, for a couple of weeks. Earthquakes come, and as soon as it hit, I called my mom. I said, Mom, we had the big one. And I thought it was. I thought that was, this has got to be the big one. Turns out it wasn't yet. It was a 6.9, but the big one is still not hit. And so we all, when we experience these things, we always think that we're living through the big one, the big famine, the big earthquake. Jesus says, no, these things are going to happen. Cool your heels. That happens throughout church history. It's not a sign that the end is near. This is an experience that all will have. Verses 9 and 10, the death and persecution of believers. In verses 9 and 10, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and puts you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another that was true then you, you think today uh, you think of uh, uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when Paul is standing nearby watching those crucify kill Stephen the first Christian martyr that's recorded Paul himself, Peter himself all suffered persecution. Nearly all these disciples would die of persecution, horrible deaths. That was true then, and it's even through, true throughout church history, up until today. Now, where we live today in the United States, we don't experience we think we experience persecution because we've got, you know, these uh, horrible government dictates and things like this. Oh, the persecuting Christians? Well, maybe they are. But we're not in any way suffering anything like all the world is, uh, around the world. In communist countries, in Muslim countries, there is real persecution of believers that happens. And so we need to kind of keep things in perspective. Because when we, th- we, we always think that we're living in the center of everything. And in fact, as we look around us, in the present world and throughout history, we see that we're just one spot in this big spiral of, of, of evil we're not the center of it all. It's always been there. Today, I mean, we could, and, and we've done this, uh, have uh, discussions of missionaries around the world, the persecution that they suffer, the Christians in these various countries. Uh, in China, back in 1914, I've got a, a picture of those who translated the Bible into Chinese back then. And the Chinese were able to read it freely. Now it's hidden. They have to, to uh, read it in, in secret. There's still a lot of Christian believers in China, but they're not allowed to profess their faith. And so you think about the believers around the world. It's a challenging world in which we live, but Jesus said this. This will always be the case. The persecutions would come uh, in in 64 AD. That's when Nero uh, began his, the fire of Rome. He took the occasion the fire of Rome to blame it on the Christians. And so there was an increase of persecution on Christians In 64 AD, we see that following that, uh, uh, Domitian, Diocletian, Decius, and other Roman emperors persecuting Christians. That's always been the case. In verse uh, 9 and 10, as we covered, death and persecution, verse 11, the duplicity of false prophets. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, there was false prophets in those years past. There's always been these false prophets. There's still false prophets today. If you were to look over a list of the Christian bestsellers in the past 20 years, you would find it littered with heresy and false prophets. You think about that. They're all over the place out there. Um, there is this whole uh, cycle of uh, uh, heaven tourism books. You know, I died and went to heaven. Uh, Don Piper, not John Piper, but Don Piper writes stories about going to heaven. And they write this nonsense, and then it sells millions. Uh, In fact, the the, the third one written is a, A Boy Who Went to Heaven. He wrote this when he was a child, but when he grew up, he said, you know, my dad and I concocted this story, and he wrote the book. It was all a lie. It never happened. I always knew it never happened. But that didn't prevent them from selling millions of copies of these books. Um, Joel Osteen, Your Best Life, now contains steps that are basically heretical in many ways, centering on yourself, the prosperity gospel, as really the way of having a good life. When the scriptures really speak of something far different from that. There was another book uh, some years ago, The Prayer of Jabez. Remember that book? I remember a pastor friend of mine actually picked up this book, and he was engrossed by it. The Prayer of Jabez, this story that uh, uh, Wilkinson takes out of a particular passage in 1 Chronicles, that if you just pray with enough conviction and heart that your, your, your prayers will always come, they will always be answered. And that book sold 10 million copies. Well, that's not how the Bible teaches to pray. After that, the circle maker, another guy who takes an idea from the Talmud, even not even Christian, takes it from the Talmud and says, You can draw a circle around something and stand in that circle and pray until God delivers and he will always answer you. False prophets have been throughout history, even today. We see this continually. Um, Let me show you some of the false prophets of the ancient past. This is a book called The Other Bible. And it's 750 pages of ancient texts that are used, uh, that were circulated in the first century. Now, all of the uh, critical scholars we know of today, Bart Urban and others, they will say, oh, these four Gospels, you know, they're made-up stories, invented by the church sometime later, can't be reliable, the whole thing. But you've read the four Gospels, you know what they sound like. When they come to these other ancient Gnostic texts, Now their ears perk up and say, wow, these are powerful texts that shows that Christianity was a very diverse sort of world. And there are multiple kinds of Christianities. Bart Ehrman calls it lost Christianities, lost scriptures. If I read a couple of these verses from, and I could do this all afternoon, but the Gospel of Thomas. This is one recently found, it was known throughout history, but found And here's a passage. Now tell me if at the end you think this means anything. Jesus saw infants being suckled, and he said to his disciples, These infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. Mm, This is powerful. Then he said to them, Shall we then as children enter the kingdom? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one and the same, so that the male not be male, nor the female female. And when you fashion eyes in the place of an eye, and a hand in the place of a hand, and a foot in the place of a foot, and likewise in place of a likeness, then you will enter the kingdom. Now, is there any suspicion that this should be included in our canon? Is there anything like sounds biblical about that? Now, here's my favorite the Gospel of Thomas, and it's its last verse. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Now, Jesus hears this. So what's his response going to be? This is Jesus' response. I myself shall lead her, Mary, in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the, 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 the lost Gospels you hear about on the National Geographic programs. All of these false Gospels out there. Now, Jesus warned his disciples against this. And in the 50 years after he spoke this, all this stuff was now being written and proposed. But he knew it was coming. And for us today, we know it's coming. We know it's there. We have to be aware of it. Ignore the nonsense. Um, continuing on. In uh, verse uh, 12, the decadence of lawlessness, we see lawlessness everywhere, and because lawlessness may in, uh, will increase, the love of many will uh, grow cold. We live in a world in which people make their own laws. It's called autonomous, self-law, auto meaning yourself and namas meaning law. People become a law unto themselves. There's no longer a moral standard out there that governs us, but you just make it up on your own. And if you don't already see where it's at in our current world where we make up our own laws, not only our own laws and moral code, but now we make up our own biology. We invent insane concepts in order to do whatever we want to do. And then we're told you need to affirm what you know to be false or you yourself are the oppressor. You get the idea. We'll uh, move on from there. Verse 13 and 14. The display of Christ's kingdom. Now he's beginning to focus on a few things, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We see this gospel of the kingdom being uh, discussed here. Uh, This becomes the focus of Jesus' uh, mission. He's laying the foundations for the kingdom. The disciples begin to build on it. And for 2,000 years, We today are now actors in this grand play that God has enacted throughout history where we too are engaged in building the kingdom, the promise that God had given to us. Verse 15, we see something uh, again here troubling. The abomination of desolation, verse 15. So let's read a few verses here. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, this abomination of desolation can be viewed as something still future that has not yet happened. Or some view it as entirely past when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But I think we need to see this in a sense that is continuous through that. Beginning with the disciples, they saw their temple destroyed and made desolate by the Romans. But throughout history, there's always been this persecution and these trials of believers go through. So, spe- uh, speaking specifically to the, his generation and Jerusalem being destroyed, he warns them. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For those that fled to the city of Jerusalem, they would be destroyed. Most of them would be killed when the Romans encircled it and crushed it. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to his, grab his cloak. They had houses, one floor on the bottom, but they had a housetop with a patio up on top they could sit at and enjoy the, the cool evenings. But the staircase to the top was on the outside, the back side of their houses. They had one plan, basically. And the message there is when you come off the housetop, you come down the steps, don't run inside and grab your stuff. It's too late. You need to flee already. Uh, if you're uh, inside, don't grab things. You've got to go. So here's a warning to those who are living in that first century to flee. For alas, for women, uh, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, uh, beware, he says. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And these days... Uh, And if these days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect of those days, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so that if you say, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man whenever the corpse is, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This passage describing the end times, beginning with Jerusalem falling, continuing through our age, And having in some sense here perhaps Jesus now looking forward to a particular application during the time that's called the Great Tribulation. Sometimes still in the future, but there's this persecution that happens for those who are here. Now verse 29, we see the uh, deliverance by the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken." Now, those verses themselves seem to portend of an event that has never happened. The sun, the sun being darkened, the moon, all of this. But, but if we look over to a few passages, we can see in uh, Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah describes the fall of, of Jerusalem to the Babylonians the same way. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So Isaiah describes the fall of Babylon itself in these terms. Ezekiel does the same in Ezekiel 32, when I blot you out, talking now of the Egyptians, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark and will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. This apocalyptic language of the sun being blotted out, uh, the darkness that over, uh, falls over the land, reaches back in Jewish history to the fall of Babylon, uh, prophesied by Isaiah, uh, to the fall of uh, Egypt by Ezekiel. And now Jesus speaks of it as well here, of the fall of Rome itself. They will fall. But the future kingdoms, all those arrayed against Christ themselves will fall. In verse 32, we have the lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and pulls out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus now, looking forward to the future, says what I'm telling you will happen. This is the future. It came true, all of this, in the first century, but now he's beginning to look to different events. And when we come to verse 36 now, he begins to answer the second question. What will be the sign of your coming? And basically his answer is, there will be no sign. There's not going to be anything that happens that's going to tell you the second coming is now, now. There's not going to be anything. Now, we're going to see a number of parables, five of them, that he's going to describe, and you'll see these in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just as in the days of Noah, he says, judgment came. The Son of Man is going to come one day. And only Noah who preached it, only he really believed and knew. And every time Noah swung a hammer that was basically crying out, Judgment is coming, but everybody else lived eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and enjoying a regular life. So he uses the illustration of Noah. He continues on in verse uh, 40, then two men will be in the field, the one taken and the one left. Now, I don't think this is speaking of the rapture or the one taken is taken in the rapture. It's speaking of those who are not prepared when Christ returns. And the one taken is the one taken in judgment. And the one left is to enjoy the kingdom. And it continues on in verse 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill, the one taken and the one left. The uh, women would uh, run the mill, the big stone. One would push the stone halfway. The other would take it the other half, and they'd take off. It's a hard job pushing it. You'd rest, passing it along. They're working at it. One's taken, one's ready, uh, one not ready, and the other is. Verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know On what day your Lord is coming. The message is to stay awake, pay attention. Just as he speaks of a thief coming. If the master of the house knew a thief was coming, you would be prepared, you'd be at the door, you'd be on guard. The thief comes when you're not ready. We continue on, skipping to verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant to whom the master will find so doing when he comes. This message of of a master who sets a good servant who manages a house well, and the wicked servant that abuses it. The message is we're all to be good servants managing God's household well. And I think we can summarize the point of this chapter, Matthew 24, with, with this idea. There is first an era Of great suffering and tribulation that comes on the world. And it began with the fall of Rome, it even began at the Ascension, continued throughout all church history, and even today. There's great suffering, great tribulation that comes to the church. But there's also, secondly, a great coming. When Christ returns, there's a great coming, and he will come one day and bring judgment to those who are rebels and will bring blessing to those who are part of his kingdom. But the third point, and the message of these last verses since verse 36, is that we each have a calling, a calling to be ready, a calling to be about the master's business, doing God's will. That's what we're called to do. So we can, with this calling, do one of two things. We can, on the one hand, indulge ourselves, thinking like some, He's not coming for a long distant time. We can abuse the gifts that we have here. He's not coming imminently. Or we can be like others who are fearful, uh, thinking he might come any time, and we obsess with things we don't know anything about, trying to look into crystal balls with every event that happens in history. So we can indulge ourselves by missing the message, or we can engage with the message Jesus gives us. We can do what he calls us to do, When we, as he says, help those who are less fortunate, when we sit with someone who's sick and pray with them in their last days, their last hours, it's as though Jesus himself is doing that through us. When we as a church act like the church, engage with the message that he's given us, but also with the love and the compassion, that is our current calling. That's us living within the context of the kingdom that God has talked about, that Jesus preached When we do that, we are acting as those who are watching, those who are looking, knowing he may come anytime. The faithful servant that keeps the books in order and does so because the master might come and check the register any day, that's the faithful servant that we're called to be. And so the message here is not that complicated, although Matthew 24 can be interpreted in so many different ways. Quite simply, we can see it as a message for us today to be vigilant to be paying attention to our own lives in our own world. Think of Hurricane Katrina. When Hurricane Katrina came, the meteorologists were explaining to people when and where it would land. The message, though, shouldn't have been simply when and where. The message should have been, but are you ready? Are you ready? New Orleans was built several days dozen feet under sea level, and for decades they knew a hurricane would one day come and wipe out that city, and then it did. In the same way, one day the Son of Man returns from heaven, judgment will fall, and the question is, are we ready? I would encourage all of us to simply look to our own hearts and ask, Lord, help me every day to be ready. Stand with me, if you will, as we pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message from Matthew 24, and although we could only touch on, quite simply, the great depth of this message, the complexity of it, as it interlates with other parts of Scripture, Lord, we know the simple message is to be ready, so help each of us to be ready ourselves, but also to be reaching out, encouraging each other, that we're all looking out for each other, with each other, that we're all ready for that great day we look forward to when you return, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.